gentlemen, listen up. Nah, 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 nah. Welcome to the Hospitality Cash Flow Podcast. Learn how to leverage multifamily and residential properties to provide short-term housing accommodations for high-paying clients. With years of experience in hospitality and sales and marketing, your host, Noble Crawford, invites you to listen in and access these gems as he shares the mic with some of the biggest influencers in the game. Rocking with the best. His expert panel of guests share their knowledge, best practices, strategies, and resources to help you generate crazy cash flow. Combining real estate and hospitality. So listen up. Here we go. All right, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Cash Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Noble Crawford. And today I am taking the mic solo. So this is going to be a solo episode. I'm going to be sharing a little bit more with you about my story. And we're going to get into a a topic that a lot of people have been asking me about. Right. And so that topic is going to be about B2B direct bookings. So when I say B2B, I mean business to business direct booking. So for those of us that are in this short term rental space, it's a client acquisition strategy. How do we go out and find those guests? And from a B2B standpoint, we are not focused so much on finding the end user guest, our end user client, if you will, but we're more focused on working with different organizations, different companies and different verticals and things like that to go after and capture their people through them, right? So B2B, business to business, direct bookings, that's what I'm gonna talk about in today's episode of the Hospitality Cash Flow Podcast. So with that said, let's go ahead and kick it right off. For those of you who don't know my background, I'm gonna break it down for you so you have a little bit of context and you understand where I'm coming from and 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 the pieces of the puzzle will fit together nicely once you understand this. So my background began in the mid 90s in hospitality that's right so a lot of people don't realize i actually have a hospitality background so i've worked for some of the biggest brands in the hospitality space i've worked for marriott i've worked for hilton i've worked for intercontinental hotel group i've worked at sheraton holiday inn homewood suites all these different brands right and so What's interesting is that uh, although I did work some front desk, I did work some night audit, primarily my time spent in the hospitality space was spent on the event and conference side, right? So as many of you can remember, prior to the pandemic, the uh, conference space and the event space is, was very busy. There were a lot of events going on and those are certainly coming back nowadays, but that's where I cut my teeth in hospitality. So I initially started out in the conference department. I was a, a, a young man at the time and I, I worked in the conference department, setting up tables, chairs, you know, banquet stations, the whole nine yards. Right. And so I did that for a very brief period of time and eventually an opening became available in what is called the audio visual department. So that's uh, technology, that's the event technology side, right? And so I was able to kind of dive into that side of the business and then I never looked back once I did. And so primarily the work that I did in the uh, hotel and event services space was on that event technology side. And so as I learned the ropes and I learned about audio and I learned about video and I learned about lighting and I learned about switchers and control systems and all of these different technologies that are involved to put on these different events, I graduated through the ranks from just being a regular level one 
audiovisual technician all the way up to uh, a director of audiovisual and director of technology eventually. And so, so that is my, that's my core background going back to the mid nineties and how I was able to get in on the hospitality space at an early age. As a result of being in that space, I did have an opportunity to interface and interact with people at various levels of these different full service hotels, these conference centers, these event centers, these limited service properties, you know, everyone down from the hourly employee, the housekeeping team, all the way up to the general manager, right? So I was involved in, you know, BEO meetings. I was involved in those client meetings. I was attend the stand-up meetings. I would do all these things, right? And so I got to witness every aspect of hospitality at almost every level. So that was very unique and, uh, you know, unique and very eventful time for me. So fast forward, I eventually ended up kind of moving out of the hospitality space and I did a little brief stint in residential home theater. Okay. So fast forward, you know, 10, 11 or so years, I did a stint in residential home theater. That was a great time for me. I was able to learn how to both design and sell residential uh, home theater systems, whole house audio systems, you know, lighting systems, automated lighting systems, uh, just a number of different things, right? That make automation and technology work together in some pretty large upscale properties. So I did have an opportunity to work with uh, a company where whereby I was engaged with Dallas Cowboys players, Texas Rangers, Rangers players, you know, CEOs of companies, uh, doctors and surgeons, attorneys, you name it. I was engaged in it and it's some very high end, high level, multi-million dollar homes and estates. And so that was a very unique time. I ended up kind of, again, graduating in that space and to become an assistant store manager and also uh, operating in the commercial design space. And so albeit that this particular company was primarily engaged in residential, they do they did, in fact, do some commercial projects, and I ended up getting involved in the commercial sales and design side as well. And so fast forward after that, I ended up moving over to a company that primarily did commercial commercial audiovisual uh, design and installation work. So this is where my story gets pretty interesting and it will be much more relatable as we continue this series of direct bookings going forward. And so in this space, in this uh, commercial audiovisual space, I had the good fortune of being able to both work on design projects and primarily in the, on the sales side in a number of different verticals. Okay. And so those verticals ranged, they ranged from corporate. I did some work in healthcare, higher education. I did a little bit in the military federal space, did some stuff with, um, with, with small government as well a city and local government. And so those were the traditional like verticals that I worked in while I was uh, engaged at this particular company. And we did a number of different types of systems. So we did some really high end systems. You know, we did everything from, you know, work at stadiums and arenas to military bases and military installations, you know, to, you know, multi-location university campuses and, and, and things like that. Right. So I got really immersed into that and 
and uh actually enjoyed it it was uh you know it was fun while it lasted but and that was uh that was around 2006 2007 somewhere around that time frame but then a couple of years into that um in 2008 i believe it was we had a, a personal uh tragedy in our in our family and so my wife she was actually diagnosed with a brain tumor and so of course uh, as soon as we you know, kind of what led up to that. She was experiencing some some mild seizures and, and, and significant headaches and things like that over a period of time. And so after the diagnosis, we immediately uh, went and got the the surgery scheduled. And so what should have been uh, a six or so hour surgery, six to eight hour surgery ended up taking like 14 hours. OK, and the the thing of it was is that prior to the surgery you know if, if for anybody who's ever been in in a, in a situation you know or having a major surgery done at least for us we you know we had to sit down with the hospital we had to sign a bunch of paperwork we had to you know sign some you know you know sign some some paperwork basically stating that we're not going to sue the hospital or hold them liable if something happens. And in fact, they, you know, were pretty adamant about the fact that, you know, there's a high probability that during this procedure, she may need a blood transfusion. Uh, the blood transfusion may not take, you know, may not be a good fit that could produce other problems. You know, ultimately it could not end well potentially. And so, you know, do you proceed with this understanding and basically agreeing not to hold us responsible for this so a lot of that took place so it was very nerve-wracking time frame long story short 14-hour surgery she they were able to remove the entire tumor um she she did in fact need a blood transfusion as a matter of fact she had to have two blood transfusions and so after the tumor was removed and we we felt we were on the other side of it so she was in the icu and she started uh, just kind of behaving oddly was the best way I can explain it while in the ICU. And if you can imagine uh, tubes everywhere that you can think and and needles and, and just, you know, just uh, quite the scene. And uh, she would have these bouts of uh, waking up because she slept a lot during the first 48 hours. But she would have these bouts of waking up and trying to trying to aggressively like remove the tubes and, and and things that were going into her body and they were in multiple places i mean from her neck to her arms to her back of her head um you you, you can't imagine and so 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 that was a a, a challenge just having to someone be with her almost around the clock and so a, a day or two i think into recovery in the icu she ended up flatlining and uh, long story short, it turns out that she was allergic to morphine and the doctors had her on a morphine drip post-surgery. And as as misfortune would have it, it, it the morphine was like killing her organs, kind of causing her organs to shut down. And so um, so they uh, so 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 she flatlined in the ICU. So at the time, I am actually out in the uh, kind of the family waiting room area. And I, my sister, my older sister was back in the, back in the room with, uh, with my wife and, uh, I'm out, uh, talking to, uh, family and friends and people that were there supporting us. And, uh, my sister runs out, uh, you know, she's yelling at me. I need to hurry up. I come here. There's a problem. So I took off sprinting down the hall. 
and uh, as I got close to the room was a kind of busted through the ICU doors and was running and getting close to the room. The blinds, the vertical or the blinds to her, to her room, uh, the window into her room were open and I was probably closing in on 10 to eight feet away as I was getting close to the door and I could see through the blinds, the, uh, the, there was probably, I don't know, half a dozen nurses in there, two doctors. And I could see through the blinds that they were pulling the paddles out and they immediately, as I was approaching the room to enter, they immediately shut the door, um, and, uh, and, and close the blinds as they were starting to put the paddles, apply the paddles to her. So, uh, as you guys can imagine, that was, uh, the longest, uh, three to four minutes of my life. And, um, and so, um, so they were able to, you know, thankfully, thank, thank God they were able to resuscitate her. And, um, ultimately she was able to, um, to fully recover. Right. And so, so that was a, a real big tragedy, but during that recovery period, um, she, she had to learn to do a number of things again, you know, over again, you know, she had to learn to just simple things like, you know, walking, keeping her balance, um, raising her fork to her mouth, um, just, you know, things that we typically take for granted. And so during that time of recovery, I had to make a decision, you know, either I was going to stay home and uh, care for my wife or I was going to go back to the office and kind of grind it out. Because at that time I was in commission sales and, you know, in that same industry. And so I elected to stay home. Right. And uh, and take care of my wife. And so at the end, towards the end of that time frame, I think like six to eight weeks or so later, um, I got called into the office for a company wide sales meeting. And in this company wide sales me meeting, I got absolutely, absolutely berated by the CEO for having dismal sales numbers for the previous, you know, six to eight weeks. And that was despite the fact that everyone in the company knew exactly what we were going through and exactly where I was, what I was doing. And it was humiliating. It was, um, you know, it was a, a, just a mixture of the worst of emotions. And I made a decision in that moment that I am not no longer going to behold, be beholden to someone else's timetable. Right. And so, you know, I, I decided in that moment that I was going to buy back my time freedom and that I was I was going to uh, put myself in a position where, where I could be there for my for my family and, and my friends as they needed me. And so at that point, uh, for the next several years, I kind of put my put my head down and went to work and grinded and closed out uh, a few uh, on the tail end of that, a few large back to back uh, opportunities that had significant uh, commissions attached to them. And I basically cashed out of that W-2 and uh, have yet to look back. And so immediately on the heels of that, I started a, a video marketing agency in that same industry. Um, I had generated a lot of contacts and, and friends and connections. And so as that began to kind of take hold and take off, I found this thing called uh, monthly recurring revenue, MRR, which is a beautiful thing if you if you haven't heard of it before. And so what I what I found was that having clients where you were charging a monthly recurring revenue for managing their 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 marketing, right? Uh, at the time I was a a HubSpot partner. So we we're a HubSpot partner agency. But uh, as we were managing some of their video and their inbound marketing efforts, there was a monthly 
recurring revenue attached to that. And so as you stack clients, of course, that number grows. Well, the problem with, with that was that I found I found myself working substantially more in my entrepreneurial endeavor than I was even in my W-2. So it was a uh, kind of reversal of fortune, if you will, there. But uh, yeah, a, f- a few years into that, I, I found out about the uh, short term rental business. And my wife and I, we ended up uh, going out to California to a mastermind event that we attended where some operators were out there just crushing it in short term rentals. And after we kind of learn the game over the weekend we we said hey we can do this back home in texas and we came back and put our heads down and went to work right and uh so from 2017 till uh 2020 we're cruising right along COVID hits we all know what happened there we were very fortunate in that time because we had started applying some direct booking uh methods that i will begin talking about uh, across this series that were able to not only sustain us during COVID, but was able to help us grow. And so very fortunate in that. And then fast forward through 2021, we had grown our direct bookings substantially up to 65% of our bookings at that point were direct. And then of course, here we are today with uh, virtually almost all of our bookings being direct. And so so that is my that is my story. I'm sticking to it. And uh, so I wanted to kind of mention that as some context, you know, before we dive a little bit uh, in the next uh, few episodes or however long it takes to talk about these different direct book verticals, these B2B direct book verticals. And as we kind of get into that, and I don't know that these episodes will happen concurrently, I think they'll be broken up with some of my other interview based episodes. But um, just to give you an idea of, of the what we consider the top seven direct book verticals, right? Um, let me run down those for you and, uh, and they'll give you a little bit of insight about some of the things we're going to talk about. So corporate uh, corporate travel, that's one of them. And of course, with travel coming back now, uh, that, uh, that's, a, that's a nice one. Healthcare, that's another one. Higher education, uh, local and state government, okay? Relocation agencies, and relocation specialist, insurance and disaster relief, and the military and federal government space. Okay, those are the primary verticals that uh, that we kind of participate in and generate our bookings from. There's a bonus one that uh, that we don't necessarily participate in, but I'm going to bring on a guest to talk about that one in a future episode. But uh, but those are the seven. And so it, it, again, from the top, like corporate. So for those for those folks that are interested in generating some of those corporate bookings, uh, especially from uh, travel, right, from event travel and conference travel and things like that, a good resource is going to be your local convention and visitors bureau. Right. So your convention and visitors bureau, those are typically organizations that provide a lot of information about the conferences and events that are coming to your city, how large they are, um, who the contact person is, who the event planner is for that organization, typically the dates, number of attendees, you know, the whole nine yards. So those provide a wealth of leads and information specific to the event industry. Okay. Another one would be 
Meeting Professionals International, so MPI. MPI is actually the largest association of meeting professionals in the world. And so those connections that you make there, those can be absolutely price, priceless, right? Because you want to connect with the people who are making decisions about accommodations and lodging and things like that for their attendees or either for their staff and for their speakers, whatever the case is. Okay, so MPI, good one to look at. Another one, a lot of people don't understand or realize that uh, American Express Global Business Travel has what's called a supplier, a supplier partner network. Right. So definitely check that out because that can help position your brand to capitalize on the business traveler market. Okay. So another vertical is going to be healthcare, right? And really providing accommodations to healthcare professionals, right? So one of the things that uh, has really come about as of late through uh, Clubhouse, through uh, primarily a, a friend of mine, his name is Jesse Vasquez. He really talks about uh, the healthcare recruitment agencies in this space, right? And so those are absolute gold mines for, you know, attaining those direct leads of healthcare professionals that are traveling on assignment. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think a few of the ones that he named would be like uh, uh, AYA Healthcare, uh, Triage Staffing. There's a number of them, but they're healthcare recruitment agencies. In any case, how we started and how we kind of fell fell into the healthcare space, as I mentioned before in my previous job, we worked with higher education uh, facilities. Well, one of our one of my accounts was at a medical school, medical program, right? And so, one of the things I learned while managing that account was that these future, you know, doctors and surgeons and things like that, as they were at that level of education at that you know higher level of education they were responsible for their own lodging and accommodations so it's not a situation where they're staying in dorm rooms or anything like that they had to go out and find those apartments furnished or unfurnished those you know shared uh rooms within somebody else's property things like that and so so that was the first place that we turned when we we're considering looking at the healthcare space. That was one. Then the other one was directly with the hospitals and, you know, not, you know, knowing what we know now, we probably would have taken a slightly different approach, but it ended up working out well going into directly to the hospitals and, tr and asking uh, human resources who we could speak to about providing accommodations for these um, healthcare professionals and travel nurses and things like that. And so, uh, so we were plugged in that way initially. So multiple ways to enter that healthcare space can be very lucrative and certainly good for your longer midterm extended stays. Okay. Another one is higher education. Okay. So higher education, most people, when you think about higher education, you're thinking about student housing, right? And so while that is something to, you know, to, to potentially take a look at, that's not necessarily, you know, what I'm talking about. So I'm, really primarily talking about faculty housing right so um you know so s some of those faculty housing uh and staff housing there are departments that exist on some college universities and, and uh, campuses and things like that so and and i'm talking about housing like you know tenured and visiting faculty you know so some some staff and faculty they may not in fact live in the city where they're teaching they are there maybe for an academic semester or an academic school year and they need accommodations while they're there uh, teaching, but they live in another city. And so those are awesome opportunities to house the staff and faculty. In addition to that, you know, you're looking at people like uh, postdoctoral candidates, uh, research assistants, graduate level. And one of our favorites is international students. And 
with international students. And again, we kind of fell into this as well. And this really was triggered during COVID. So as we all remember during COVID, there was a time where the universities and colleges started shutting down, right? They started shutting down the campuses and eventually shutting down the dormitories. And these, you know, college students kind of had to scatter or go back home or what have you. Well, a problem kind of was presented in that the international student that had come to the U.S. to go to school, if you remember, the flights were shut down going out of the country. And so they could not return home. And so, you know, so we had the bright idea to go to these student housing offices and in, in locations where we had units near uh, colleges and universities and say, hey, we can accommodate these international students during this time while they are you know, displaced for the most part. And so we were able to generate a significant amount of steady uh, bookings, longer term bookings, if you will, during that by catering to that uh, that international student. And it just so happens that uh, and, and it wasn't by design. It was purely just um, kind of nat naturally occurred that uh, we found the, the our kind of sweet spot in the international student demographic was, uh, you know, as good fortune would have it was was Asian females. Right. And so and then we found out after we started taking on the first one, they had friends that were also displaced that, uh, you know, were, you know, that were not from the U S and, uh, and so where, where we had units where we had three and four bedroom units, we then started instead of, uh, you know, making those available as an entire property, we then started making those available per door. Right. So then we're charging, um, you know, a, a per door per month. And that opportunity just exploded. Right. And across a number of different uh, properties. And so, so, so higher education is definitely, is definitely worth looking at. Okay. Another one I'll talk to you about is going to be um, city and kind of local and state government. So there's a lot, a lot of opportunity through local and state government, right? Um, so the state government, you know, believe it or not, um, in most states in the U.S., they provide accommodations and relocation funds for displaced homeowners due to different projects that may be going on. Maybe they're like road infrastructure projects, right, that happen under the Department of Transportation, um, where the state is, you know, has uh, funding to, you know, basically you know, house displaced homeowners. So here in Texas, they call it eminent domain. So if the local state or government or what have you comes in and they take over a residential area because they need to maybe build a freeway there or something like that, then by law, they have the ability to do that through eminent domain. But those displaced homeowners are a lot of times provided with relocation funds and lodging funds up to 18 months. Right. So that's significant. So you know how to go after those and, uh, you know, make sure that your entity is in a position to take advantage of that. That can provide you uh, a very profitable opportunity. OK, so 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 those are a couple of others. Um, relocation agencies. Right. So those are huge. So relocation agencies and relocation uh, specialists. Those are huge because 
you know, what do they need for their clients? Typically their clients are, you know, relocating into another state, to another city, what have you. And they need temporary accommodations while they, you know, plant their roots and while they look for permanent housing and that sort of thing. So when you are affiliated and associated and you build built relationships with, you know, relocation agencies and relocation specialists that can pay huge dividends for you. And that's something that we've done as well. There's a company called, I believe, Mo Global Mobility Solutions. And what they've done is they've curated a list of associations and memberships that would be beneficial for everybody to look into this, listening to this. Right. And kind of get acquainted with those key players in that space space in order to add value to their clients. Okay. Another area is going to be insurance and disaster relief, right? So insurance housing, uh, for those who don't know, that's uh, where we're, you would provide, you know, um, furnished accommodations for people that are displaced due to, I don't know, maybe it's a fire, a flood, termite damage, whatever's happening at their their residence, their home residence, um, whereby they would qualify for, uh, you know, through their homeowners insurance for temporary housing accommodations. So insurance housing can be huge. I think a lot of us that uh, are familiar with the industry are are also familiar with the big player in the space, ALE insurance. So they're, I think the biggest national player in the space in terms of uh, insurance housing, but there are a number of others. And so I would definitely recommend, um, certainly get your properties listed on ALE. Um, they have a, a place on their site where you can add your property, I, but I would definitely recommend looking at smaller regional, uh, housing insurance providers as well, right? Because with those smaller regional companies, you can develop a relationship with them, become the go-to resource in your market for, uh, you know, for that, that, that product and service that they're looking for, for their clients. Right. And so that can yield, um, months and months and months of direct, you know, high revenue bookings for you. Okay. So insurance pays handsomely. Okay. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example. You know, we had a, I believe it's three or four bedroom town home that was listed at the time on the OTAs. And I think we were, uh, for a month stay, I think I want to say the, the rate was probably, I don't know, 3,500, 4,000, something like that. The rent on it was only like 1800. So it was good cash flow. But when we had an insurance company in there and the family took it for like three or four months, it's $7,500 a month. Okay. And so that's the, that's the nature of, uh, of, of just this, the, the insurance space. So definitely something worth looking into, uh, disaster relief and disaster recovery. Right. So, uh, uh through that program, FEMA, Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency or Association, there, there's a program called the Individuals and Households Program, IHP, that provides financial and direct temporary housing services to eligible individuals and households that are affected by a disaster, right? Now, you do need to become FEMA approved to be able to participate in that, but that's easier to do than you might think, right? So definitely tap in with me because that's certainly easy for you to do. And you can actually have your uh, quote unquote Airbnb listed property included on that as well. All right. So now last but not least, certainly one of my favorites and I'm going to kind of combine two in, into the last one, but it's a military and federal government. Okay. And so military and federal government, uh, government contracts to be exactly, uh, are extremely, extremely lucrative and, 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 uh, certainly the government contract work. Right. And so from a military perspective, um, you can certainly house military personnel, 
um, probably what I would recommend doing, you'll need to tap in with the housing office that you're at the nearest like military base or military installation. If you have any units near, near there, and uh, you can do this for units that you own. You can do this for arbitrage units as well. And so, and, and for those who don't know, arbitrage is basically where you're renting something and you're releasing or re-renting it to your client. And so for, for military personnel, so they get a, a housing stipend, but it's determined by rank. So here's a, a clue. So they have what's called a BAH. That's a basic allowance for housing. So that basic allowance for housing determines how much they get on a monthly basis as a housing stipend. And so so I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, I want to say that an E3 rank and above would qualify for off base housing. Right. And so so essentially what you want to do is you want to position yourself to target higher ranking military service members. Right. So what does that mean? That means the officers, the officers get the highest uh, amount in a, in a housing monthly housing stipend. Right. And so that's really who you want to target. And not only just the officers, but officers with dependents and small families they get an even higher housing allowance right and so 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 there's some strategy around that we'll dig into that in a future episode but certainly something worth looking at and then last but not least government contracts which is the single number one most lucrative opportunity available and i won't sugarcoat it is also the most uh you know the requires the most red tape up front to kind of get started in right so but you it's a process where you only have to go through it literally one time and Trust me when I tell you, after you have positioned yourself to take advantage of these opportunities, it is the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. And if you think about it, folks, the federal government, you know, has likely the largest single accounts payable department on the planet and a, a overwhelming majority of the money that they're doling out is going through government contracts. And those government contracts, there's a huge portion of those that are uh, designated to the small business owner. OK. And so inside of of that as well are lodging opportunities lodging and accommodations and short and long-term housing opportunities that are under contract and and these could be you know these could vary you know so a lot of people will ask me well you know how much can you do how much can you make with a government contract well it, it depends right um if you house a if you house a, a small team of a couple of dozen people and you do it for, you know, maybe 10 days, a couple of weeks and you make 25 K in your, in your properties, then great. Uh, however, if you are engaged in a prime contract where you're doing direct business with the government and they need multiple doors for an extended period of times of, of time, you know, typically anywhere from a year up to five or six years, that can become a multiple seven figure opportunity. Okay. So when I when I tell you that the government contract space is really where it's at, and when we get to that, we'll be talking specifically, I'm going to do an episode specifically on the government contract space and how you can absolutely uh, crush any other type of, you know, short term rental opportunity through, through, through government contracts. So I'm looking forward to that episode. But folks, those are the primary verticals. And the the top ones that uh, that we kind of play in and that uh, that I teach in in my, in my program, you know, with, with, with my students. And so if uh, engaging with me is something that you have an interest in, certainly feel free to DM me on Instagram. I will give you my Instagram handle and it will be in the show notes as well. But it is Noble, N-O-B-L-E. 
dot Crawford, C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D dot the number three. So noble dot Crawford dot three. That's my IG handle. If you have an interest in my coaching program, certainly feel free to tap in with me. Send me a DM coaching on Instagram. I am getting ready to kick off a government contracts only accelerator 12 month program for people who have a an interest in that um so that is a very exclusive uh opportunity i will only be taking a handful of people for that i will be partnering with another person in the federal contract space that has uh, years of experience as well as we bring bring the uh the absolute gold for people that are looking to really uh you know do some big things with their short-term rental business utilizing government contracts so if you have an interest in that shoot me a dm and just say government contracts and uh and, and then we'll I, i'll respond to everybody i do respond to my dms and uh you know we'll, we'll set up a call we'll make sure that uh that the program either one of them is a good fit for you that you're a good fit for the program that sort of thing and go from there so folks that is going to do it for this episode thank you so much for hanging with me i hope you found some value out of this and we will see you on the next one